to Disorderly Dogs, the podcast for dog owners. If you find yourself in precarious predicaments with your dog, this podcast is for you. I'm Rachel Harris. I'm a certified professional dog trainer, and I hope to give you a fresh outlook on your dog's behavior and practical dog training advice. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast. We are so excited that you're here. Uh, We are going to talk all about the Shelter Playgroup Alliance today, which is doing some pretty remarkable work. So Mara, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself for the listeners? Tell us a little bit more about your role at Shelter Playgroup Alliance, and then we can talk more about the organization. Sounds great. So hello, everybody. I'm Mara Velas, and I'm the executive director and co-founder of the Shelter Playgroup Alliance. So my primary role is to keep everything running along with my operations director, Keem C, who also is my uh, my sidekick, um, who, who also helps everything run. So I'm the primary instructor for our online educational program um, for going out to shelters and teaching um, handling workshops and kind of keeping the organization running. Right. Yeah. It's a very hands-on thing, right? Like helping people understand how they can be hands-on in the shelter play groups. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So we actually started, so it actually is our, our, core program, our educational program that is free online. Um, So that covers a lot of body language and overview of um, our approach to running Lima-based playgroups. So, you know, running playgroups is probably your listeners aware, and I'm sure that you are all, all too familiar with is that it's a really advanced skill. Um, it requires a lot of knowledge of body language and all of, a lot of knowledge of what good play looks like and um, a really deep understanding of interdog social signaling so that you can tell whether that, that little interaction is going to go well or if it's not so well and if you need to intervene at some point. And then we have some, um, some Lima based guidelines on what that intervention looks like and how to introduce dogs. So there is definitely on, even in the online portion, it's not just set and get, (laughs) um, there folks, um, take video of themselves doing handling and, um, recording their, their observations of videos, so it is actually quite an interactive program. Oh my God. Um, I love it. It has to be intensive. It has to be right. Like is. how else are we really going to produce skilled handlers in that? Okay. So before we jump into that, I want to kind of yeah. jump back to like the history of shelter play group Alliance. So you're one of the founders. So can you mm-hmm. kind of tell us like the roots of shelter play group Alliance? Yeah. So it actually started, I was, um, a behavior and training consultant at Contra Costa Animal Services, which is a large open emission shelter that's just 30 minutes away. I'm here in Oakland, California. Um, so it's just 30 minutes east of me. Um, so I was 
we had completed kind of developing a volunteer training program, getting everybody up to speed on sort of what we needed them to know about um, dog behavior so that they could do behavior modification or that we had some volunteers who could do some behavior modification, some more advanced work. Um, we had, of course, a lot of shy and fearful dogs that um, we wanted to to help grow in confidence. And then, of course, the jumpy mouthy dogs that were trying to teach um, what we called our canine charm school, um, teach them how to be more polite <laughs> with people and with other dogs. Um, and then once we finished all of the volunteer training, um, we then you know, decided to, well, let's, what is, what are some additional enrichment things that we can do um, for the folks who were now fully trained up? There was a good, you know, 40 or so hours of learning with me. I'm sure those volunteers at that point were just like, Mara, we just can't even handle anymore. You thank you very much. Um, but we, <laughs> but we That's were no looking small to- <laughs> feat, getting all those volunteers, right? Like I know those of you who are listening, who have experience with volunteers, it's not an easy thing to like one, get volunteers to get all the volunteers on the same page. And they'd be like, okay, so now everyone's on the same page. Let's do something else. Like that in and of itself is a very giant feat. Well, we had drop-offs at every level, right? So we didn't have everybody going through all of it. Not everybody wanted to work with jumpy mouthy dogs. So, um, (laughs) or had the patience to work with fearful dogs, which is totally fine. So the first two levels we had everybody go through and then the net, the two more advanced levels, um, that was a volunteer's choice, but we had enough of them. So then when I was thinking about um, okay, well, what is our playgroup protocol going to look like? Um, started asking around. So um, we looked at um, other shelters in Northern California. And at that time, Lisa Molinex was at the, the Sacramento SPCA. Um, and so had a conversation with her and, um, then we decided, well, wouldn't that be awesome if we just got a bunch of people from Northern California who were all Lima based trainers who were all working in shelters, let's get together and see what, what everybody's doing. Cause I'm sure we're all doing it slightly differently. Great to share best practices and, you know, think about, you know, how we can all learn from each other. And that was the initiation of SPA. So we had a 45 people ended up not just being Northern California. We had Southern California, we had Oregon, we had some folks from Chicago. Um, So it ended up being a thing of like 45 people um, at all, you know, crammed in at the Sacramento SPCA. Everybody paid for their own way, their own hotels, all of that. It was just a kind of gathering of folks. Um, And we selected out some folks to um, present different stages. Like, how do you do introductions? How are you managing tracking data? Um, How are you running play? What tools do you use. So we had a couple of dates and then um, about half of those folks said, yeah, I'll help with writing some guidelines. <laughs> so then our next nine months, and this was before we were incorporated as a 501c3, um, the next nine months was a lot of writing. So um, I sort of managed uh, the process and um, then normalized all of the the guidelines. So I got my, my hands in there, but really the guidelines were written by 
over 20 people who were collaboratively putting all of their pieces and ideas. And then we did a, a read around. Um, so one group would be working on one section. And then when they were done, they read the other group section so that everybody really had their fingers kind of all in that pie, <laughs> which makes it a much more tasty pie, right? So um, yeah, that was, I, I, I always want to make clear, even though I'm sort of running the ship that the the way that we propose that um, play groups are run is not the world according to Mara by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> it's the world according to some of the um, some really, really talented and experienced shelter-based trainers across the country. So um, that those are the guidelines that we have on our website. Um, and so that's, and then I said, well... <laughs> we got to kind of figure out how to pay for all this. Uh, so then we incorporate it as a nonprofit um, and we collect donations um, and that helps us run where we are, we are pretty lean and mean in terms of our budget. We operate um, last year, we had a, a whopping $13,000, <laughs> um, but that pays for our website. It pays for, you know, the things that we need to pay for, for our learning management system. and. Um, folks who, and, you know, it's really important to us that, um, to myself and to our board of director, um, that the education remains free. Um, you know, shelter folks often are doing it for the love of, um, animal welfare to, you know, provide the best experience, um, for the animals that are in their care. But, um, you know, they're not making a ton of money. Um, so we don't want that to be a barrier. And so that has been really a part of our success in um, kind of spreading the word that that plea groups, that you, that you don't need to use aversive tools. You don't need to use um, shake cans or spray bottles or do any sort of alpha rolls or throw anything at any dogs or use a flag or, you know, whatever. Um, none of that is necessary to run play groups in shelter. Um, so we have had hundreds of, um, of shelters and lots of individuals, actually quite a few, um, daycares, which is very cool. Um, and folks across the country in Asia, Australia, um, Ireland and, um, Greece. So we have folks from all over that join our cohorts and have, um, taken our learnings and, you know, implemented them in one way or another in their shelter. So it's been, it's been pretty cool. What a beautifully collaborative effort. Okay. Because I think that we need to just talk a little bit about that because I think that there's a little bit of this stigma in the shelter world that like change is really hard and it's hard to get along with people. And I think that, yes, some of that is true, but you also proved that people who have the same mission are absolutely capable of collaboration. And that is just, that's extraordinary in and of itself. Yeah, it absolutely has been a rock and collaboration. Um, and of course, you know, super talented people who volunteered their time um, to write pieces. Um, and, you know, the, the key is having a really clear vision um, for what we wanted to achieve. And, you know, the problem statement that sort of led us to even say, let's get together and write something is that there wasn't anything on the national stage that was Lima based. 
right? So we had something on the national stage that is very much not Lima. Um, and so we so for to- everyone listening, who's not familiar, Lima stands for least intrusive, minimally aversive, right? So I know a lot of the listeners are probably familiar with that, but if those of you who aren't, it's, it's very important, right? That's how I choose to train the dogs. And yeah, that was not consistent in the, the shelter world. Yeah. Yeah. And um, to build on the Lima, so, you know, least intrusive, minimally aversive, not only means that um, we're not going to use um, aversives as much as we possibly can, um, but the least least um, intrusive, really what it, the principle there is least restrictive. So what does it mean to not restrict. Well, the flip side of that is give lots of choice. So what that means is, you know, when we're thinking about an enrichment program, we're giving the dogs choices. What would you like to do? Do you want to meet with this other dog? Would you like to do nose work instead? So actually our first few modules um, in our program are just delivering other forms of enrichment, non-play-based enrichment. Um, And that's training, you know, training with people. Um, cause a lot of the dogs who are coming into the care of, of a lot of shelters, um, they're, they're not ready to play yet, or they don't really like other dogs or they only like a few of them. And those, the few that they do like are not actually at that shelter. So, um, you know, they're not dog aggressive in any way, but they're just not interested in play group. So we don't want to flood them, which would be, you know, throwing them in and not giving them a choice. We want to say, hey, is this a good thing for you? Um, And giving choices helps build confidence, especially for a lot of the shy, fearful dogs who really need a confidence boost. Um, So that is a really important piece. Yeah. And I feel like in the shelter world, there's, there's just the limitations of being in the shelter takes away a lot of the autonomy of the animal, right? Like, you're, you're in the shelter. You only go out when we put you on the leash and take you out. Right. So I think that just those small, meaningful choices inside of the constraints of shelter life can be extremely impactful on, you know, the whole spectrum of behavior, right? Like maybe the, the jumpy bitey ones, maybe the ones who are in the corner, right? Like choice Mm -hmm. has a lot of beautiful applications for dogs on every end of this behavior spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of those jumpy mouthies are anxious. So, you know, it's not just that they're, that they're rude or that they haven't been trained. Well, yeah, that too. Um, But they just have no other way of expressing. So giving them a couple of different ways to gain contact with reinforcement, you can get reinforcers this way or this way or this way. Um, Then we can find a path that actually works for that animal. So that is, that's another kind of differentiation. You know, I, I, um, as we were continuing to develop the the guidelines and um, thinking about what our offerings would be, um, I really had a realization that, oh, well, we're just really developing, helping shelters develop enrichment programs. I guess we're just going to lure them in. We had already decided on the name Shelter Playgroup Alliance, but as we were building, um, we really discovered that it was, we were talking about um, helping shelters build robust enrichment programs. And the concept of play was sort of a lure, (laughs) sort of a bait and switch. (laughs) You want to learn about play? Well, we're going to pre-mac that with learning about um, 
learning about multiple forms of enrichment before you get there. Um, and really what I wanted folks to be able to do is if a dog says, no, thank you. Well, you have, you know, put them back in the kennel that there's lots of other stuff that we already have set up um, for you, dog who doesn't want to meet that other dog. We don't have the right dog in care today, but um, let's, let's go on this nose work path or we have these other, um, I already have a, a bunch of behaviors that I have at the ready to do some training with you or um, so having, having a whole list of things for volunteers to do. If that dog says no, thanks to an interdog interaction. So that is really, that's the foundation on which we're building play groups on top of. Right. Well, and it's like, you know, I, I can see some of the slightly impossible nature of like meeting every shelter dog while they're at and replicating that for everyone because there's just so much variation, right? I'm sure there are some dogs that come in, they stay for two days, see ya. Some dogs who come in, maybe they're there for longer. Maybe they're not afraid. Maybe they are afraid, right? I love how you can help everyone understand like some of those foundational enrichment things that we could do to meet the dog where they're at, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and I'm also trying to, um, my pitch on behavior modification is that, well, it's just enrichment, right? So if you're doing behavior modification, you're saying, okay, well, we're going to do bat or lat or, you know, any form of um, counter conditioning that has an, has an operant conditioning component with it, whichever one we're choosing, cat, whatever. Um, so all of that, if you have the dog who is calm and relaxed that entire time, you're not letting them feel that fear or feel that frustration. So we're keeping them whatever under threshold, <laughs> um, that, that should be enjoyable. That's enrichment too. So, you know, let's, let's work those protocols. Let's help that dog feel more comfortable in whatever space and not call it, I mean, we can call it behavior modification also, but that also is enrichment. As long as they're enjoying it, we're not, that we're not pushing them too hard, too fast. We're going at their pace, all enrichment as far as I'm concerned. And do you feel like the um, reception from like volunteers and the shelter staff that are, is learning this information, do you feel like it's easily absorbed so they can implement it right away? Like it's some of the enrichment stuff is really not hard, right? Like it's sometimes it's a very simple, let's do food this way or. Yep. Yeah. So we start off with sort of giving them the critical analysis tools of like, you know, what is the, what's species typical? How can you do this? We also include a module on feline enrichment. Um, that's actually some of the places that we want to take um, our educational program is adding, you know, other species. We're not just dog centric. I mean, we are <laughs> at the moment, but you know, cats are people too, right? Um, yes, yes, but, they are. <laughs> so having cats and other species, um, birds. So, you know, those same principles apply regardless of species. You look at, so what is species typical? What are some of the things that we can do? How can we get creative? Um, so I do find that, um, that folks go, oh, oh yeah, I can do that. And then we get all sorts of creative things out of just that little spark. Um, and the way that our educational program is designed, 
um, it's a four month program and I expect folks to spend a couple of hours, um, each week. So it's chunked learning, which is one of the best ways to learn just a little bit at a time and not getting super overwhelmed, um, with all of this information coming at you. So from that, once we switched from me just going to shelters and doing a three day, like, I'm just going to do a little dump on you. Um, find the implementation of it is actually much more stable and sustainable um, because once somebody new comes on staff, we can enroll them um, and then they get up to speed with the rest of the team. Um, So splitting is not just for teaching dogs. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Yes. We're always shaping. (laughs) Yes. Always. That's so beautiful. Okay. So can you share with the listeners a little bit more about like, um, so we make sure that the dog is enriched, right. In whatever way that looks, and we're, we're building more choice, not just for the dog, I guess we should say the animal in this case. So when we have an animal who is choosing to interact with other dogs, can you kind of walk the listeners through like a little bit of what you're trying to empower shelter staff to accomplish. Because, you know, as someone who previously worked at a shelter and a daycare, managing a group of dogs playing is a very, very tumultuous emotional ride for the human end, right? So like- It can be, yeah, (laughs) it can be for sure. Yeah, so let's say that we have a very dog social dog. We have two dog social dogs. Um, And, you know, that those are in the shelter setting getting a little fewer and farther between, but um, maybe about 25% of our population at any given shelter. Um, so, you know, not that many, but let's assume that we have, you know, two dogs who are like, yes, you're amazing. Um, so how do we discover that? So we have them on leash. Um, I'm, it's really important to me that we're doing um, introductions of the dogs on harnesses. So at our shelter um, at Contra Costa, um, we, you know, use the pleads to move the dogs through the shelter. Um, but for any of the behavior stuff, we have a set of, of um harnesses that we use to do the introductions. So we're doing introductions in protected contact. So that means behind um, with a secure fence between the dogs, just in case something happens, also take some of the pressure off of the handler so that they're not, you know, white knuckling the leash in case something happens. You can be much more fluid, um, much more relaxed when you're um, doing that introduction. Let's say that that introduction goes well. Both of the dogs have loose and wiggly bodies. They play about to each other. They make some lateral movement. Their eyes are soft. They're like, oh my gosh, I met my new best friend today. That's amazing. Can we get on the same side of the fence? So usually those introductions, that's like, you know, 30 seconds, right? Really quick. We can see that there, there's already a love connection, um, And then we bring the dogs together on the same side of the fence. Um, We make sure that we're doing that introduction again, but this time in semi-protected contact just means that there's still a leash attached to that harness. Um, Just to double test, because we're, you know, often I see that the dogs are like, hey, 
what's up through the fence and then they get into the yard together and they're like yeah just kidding um so actually maybe i don't like you quite that much um coffee's fine but lunch too much um so they have they say oh yes we absolutely want to have lunch together um so then they might have a little bit of play um we'll drop the leashes and have them drag for a little bit and then if it keep continues to go on well and i use this like eating together metaphor um or analogy that you know now we want to have dinner so there we can take the leashes off they want they'll play together they'll you know play for a couple of minutes they'll rest they might go back to playing um but at that entire time we're seeing them take breaks if we're not seeing them take breaks that's when we'll prompt some so we want to see that there's um a bunch of breaks we use a little squeaker or noise um some dogs are not super comfortable with that noise so we'll find an alternative i had one clever volunteer use a duck call um as the as the recall cue um so i thought that was brilliant because you know he was a duck hunter i'm like okay great he already had it it. (laughs) he already had it at home he's all can i use this absolutely of course um you know, when there's multiple people who are training, we just want to have a cup, one or two sounds that are neutral, that aren't going to escalate if our emotions get a little high. Um, so that's why the squeaker or some other sort of neutral noise. I love so, that management tool for human behavior. Yes. <laughs> right. So I think if you get a little worried, you're like, ah. Right? Yeah, right. We don't want to overstress the dogs. We just use the same thing. Same. It's always going to sound the same and it's paired with food. So we squeak or duck call and give a treat, squeak, duck call, give a treat. If the dogs are too highly aroused to come out of that, we just clip a leash on and very gently guide them away from their playmate, give them a break, and then see if we can um, have them re-engage. Management of arousal is a super important piece um, because that'll keep conflict from escalating. Oh my gosh. Um, Y'all posted something on Instagram and it was like, you know, the reason for the arousal, the direction that it's going. I can't remember uh-huh. the exact verbiage. That's what I was like, all right, I need to talk to Shelter Flakers <laughs> Alliance. I need to talk yeah. to somebody about this more. Okay. So can you expand yeah. on that a little bit, right? Like the sure arousal. Can. So um, maybe define a little bit of the arousal, just so the listeners kind of really understand what you're talking about and then the direction the arousal can go. Yeah. So we're always aroused if we're alive, right? So zero arousal would be that we're six feet under and that our friends and family have you know, are very sad. So as long as we're alive, we're, there's some level of arousal. So we can have low levels of arousal. That's just being as calm and relaxed. Like my dog, who's sitting right here next to me. Um, he's just chilling, nothing too exciting. Um, but that arousal can increase. So that's the low to high level of arousal. High level of arousal would be like, you know, um, maybe some pilo erection and, um, you know, sees the squirrel, it's pyloerect starts to chase the squirrel. That's a high level arousal. Then the valence, that's the, that's the word that you're talking about that we had in the post. Um, so that's the value to the learner. Is it positive or is it negative? So high arousal, positive valence is like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Um, so, you know, that, that scenario that I was just talking about, the, the two, uh, you know, imagine two young dogs who are like, I'm so excited. That would be high arousal, 
positive valence. High arousal negative valence are feelings of frustration, fear. Um, so you're highly aroused or anticipation of threat aggression. Um, so if we imagine a circle and the um, from top to bottom, we have that level of arousal. And then from left to right, we have the valence. If we think about that right side being um, the positive valence, so high arousal, positive valence, or low arousal, positive valence. So the low arousal, positive valence would be the feeling of dogs when they're in nose work. They've just completed this like mental, um, you know, activity that they're like, oh, that was so much fun, but they're not running around like crazy monkeys, right? Um, but play groups are by nature, um, high arousal, positive balance. But if it gets too high, then we might get to some frustration. So we know respondent conditioning is always at play, regardless of what's happening in the world. Um, so we don't want that frustration to also be associated with other dogs or with play group. Um, so we just have the dogs take breaks periodically just so that we can keep that arousal from tipping over to that high arousal negative balance. Um, this doesn't feel so good anymore. Um, that's when, so the, some of the ways that we know that that's happening is that the, um, the behavior starts to get a little stereotypic. So it gets to be a little repetitive, like the dog is, you know, chasing and then just kind of won't let up. Um, or they're, you know, um, getting on top of the other dog and they're, they're neck grabbing and then they're neck grabbing and then they're neck grabbing and, st- and the other dog's like, Hey, with a couple of bicycle kicks saying, you know, I'd kind of like it if you got off me now. No, really now? No, really. So we don't want them to have to say that. No, really <laughs> we get, get that, get ahead of that. So, um, a lot of that play can tip. So the guidance is every couple of minutes or every minute or so, um, just call the dogs back, regardless of how well it's going, teaching them how to take breaks. This is our operant conditioning coming into play, right? Just at that, you know, every minute or so, call them back. They're like, oh yeah, oh, it's been about a minute. It's time for me to take a break. Then they can self-regulate a little bit better, especially with new playmates. Um And I see that dog. So when we were determining how often the break should be, I actually went back to a lot of video that I have of dogs playing and dogs when they're naturally taking breaks. So dogs who have lived together for a while or played really well together, they were taking breaks about every 30 seconds. So I was like, oh gosh, well, that's going to be too fast for the humans. (laughs) Nobody's going to buy into that. (laughs) But we could say a minute or, you know. And and watch the arousal level when you see it start to get a little repetitive, even if it's fine, even if there's enjoyment on both sides, let's just take a break. And then, you know, you call the dogs back, give them a treat, let them watch that, watch the respiration rate, watch the pupil dilation, um, look at that, you know, come down a little bit for the arousal and then say, okay, you're good. Let's send you back out and see if you want to um, play with that other dog again. So that's the whole arousal. And that's where some of the art comes in of you really need to be able to um, 
you know, read the dog's body language really well um, to recognize those signals and, um, and interrupt, which is why we spend so many hours (laughs) in our program going over body language and identifying the difference between quote unquote play and not play. Right. Well, and there's so much nuance, right? There really is. Every breed has a different structure. There's so much going on. Okay. So I want to hear a little bit more about maybe some of the practical application of the shelter that you're at, like, um, as far as one, like the day to day, right? Like how we're seeing some enrichment for the dogs, like on the day to day basis when they get to play. And then kind of like the after fact, like how that information helps us find the right adopter, how maybe that attracts the right adopter, um, and maybe some of the skills that come after that. Yeah. So I'm actually not at the shelter any longer. So I'm not. um, So once I started Shelter Playgroup Alliance, I left the shelter. (laughs) So, um, but what we would anticipate and what we do definitely see is that um, when dogs are um, well matched with another dog, we definitely see those dogs um, for better or for worse, for worse for the humans, but really good for the dog um, is that they end up often getting adopted pretty quickly because using that footage for marketing that animal um, is super beneficial. Um, Even though we're not necessarily wanting them to go to a, um, a dog park, (laughs) we at least know that 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 they're dog social with, um, with at least a, a couple of other dogs. So we often see those dogs sort of fly out the door. Um, and then, you know, we're seeing a reduction in their overall stress. So for any form of enrichment, for all types of enrichment, it doesn't have to be play um, that they, that those dogs, um, we've certainly seen them be able to maintain their sanity <laughs> for lack of a better term, um, but not exhibit as many forms of stress when we provide them with lots of different forms of enrichment throughout the day. So maybe four or five different contacts with enrichment, whether or not it's actually play group that does that. So enrichment is such an important piece of animal welfare in the shelter that, you know, that's the, that's the hill that we're kind of standing on and shouting and shouting from, you know, we need not to just, meet their needs. Not, yes. Yes. Not just with Kongs, even though we love Kongs. Um, but you know, just so the one thing isn't, that. isn't enough. Um, so providing them with all sorts of different forms of enrichment. Right. And I'm sure that there's a lot of variation, but Um, because you've had contact with so many people who have applied, you know, some of these principles, are there shelters who are running bigger play groups? So it's not just two dogs, multiple dogs. So we actually don't have a restriction of the number of dogs that go into play group. Um, We do have a recommendation for the number of handlers to dog. So two dogs to one handler is um, it's pretty risk averse. And that is where I tend to land. Um, you could have up to three dogs per handler. So most of the restrictions really come from the dog to handler ratio. And that really is a safety, like how many, how many dogs can you pull out of play group? How many dogs can you monitor? The two to one is that, you know, my, my own capability, I have, several dogs. So I'm really used to feeding multiple dogs. Not everybody is used to managing potential resource guarding and being super careful. Um, so when I think about 
um, a volunteer who maybe isn't super um, confident with tree delivery and not dropping anything on the ground, um, I want to see a, a one-to-one or a one-to-two. Um, so it depends on the shelter, but I have definitely seen some videos of maybe groups of four or five don't usually find again, because there's not that many super dog, social dogs who are in the shelter environment. That is such a stark number. 25%. I'm surprised by that. Honestly, I guess. Well, it depends on the region, right? So, and this is, this is anecdata. This is not peer reviewed data that we've collected robustly. So I just want to be super clear on, you know, where that's, where that's coming from, but through my travels across the country, and I've asked some other folks um, what their gut was, what have they have observed? And in some cases I've seen like maybe two dogs that are really social with each other. And in some other regions, I've seen, you know, many more dogs who are more social. So it certainly depends on your population at the moment, but. And it's ever, it's ever changing, right? It's never never consistent. Yeah. 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 Um, So consent is really the, um, does that dog want to be there? Does that dog want to be hanging out with that other dog? So that's the, rather than fixating on like a number, the two things that I want to see are the dog to handle ratio being, um, being observed and that the dog is consenting to going into the play yard that they're, you know, they're saying all that their body language is saying yes, and that they're super comfortable Um, or at least even for our shy, fearful dogs that they may not be as comfortable with the handlers, but they're much more comfortable with the dogs. And then that helps them, um, develop some confidence from, um, a con specific. So it can be super helpful for, um, our shy, fearful dogs as well. Um, but I don't really see much more than four or five dogs, not large groups, um, but in the daycare setting, you know, um, there are some daycares that are using um, our approach and they certainly have much larger groups, um, but those are dogs that know each other, right? So they, um, they meet every day, same and time, they get to go same home place. to their good lives. Go yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's a considerable difference of implementing it in, um, in a daycare setting versus implementing it in the shelter where, you know, they don't have a particular advocate. So if there is a bite, then it's, you know, um, potentially very different outcomes than if they were owned and, um, in the daycare setting, but lots of daycares are trying to get away from using any aversives, um, you know, using any shouting or, you know, any, anything like that, and just going to positive reinforcement, um, increasing their dog to handle ratios and, um, using a lot more management, um, and then also, you know, may, many more breaks throughout the day, enrichment breaks from the kind of the all day play model, which is, which is pretty tough. Um, I'm pretty social, pretty high extrovert and all day with other people also is exhausting for me. So right. <laughs> I oh need some God. breaks too. And I, and I love, I'm super I love social. How, you've, how you've highlighted the difference in the daycare versus the shelter, right? Because it's so much different. And the, in the shelter world, it's really like, how can we enrich these dogs lives with the minimum chance of like 
anything going south that could lead to more consequences, right? But in a daycare setting, you have a lot more wiggle room because these animals aren't well cared for. They do know each other, right? There is probably more of a budget for changing things than there is in the shelter world. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's so cool. I love to see more daycares applying your principles. Like that's a daycare I can get behind. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always super excited whenever. So the enrollment in our program is, you know, is super complicated. You just send send me an email and say, I'd like to be in the next cohort. So I'm always super excited whenever I see a a daycare um, uh, or, you know, a a leader from a daycare saying, I'd like to send all of these staff. Um, Can we sign them up? Like, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Still dog behavior applies regardless of the settings, but there are some important differences in the, you know, change the, change the environment, change the behavior. Right. Right. And I'd also just like to give a shout out to all of the shelter workers who are applying these principles. I have the utmost respect for you. I know it's not an easy thing and the world is a better place. Thanks to all of you. So, so I want to make sure I'm giving that proper shout out there, right? Because shelter work is, is not an easy thing. And I think it takes a very high level of bravery, truly to like, like, all right, we're doing playgroups. We've got this protocol. If the dogs want to do it, we're here for it. Like it's, it's not an easy thing because in the shelter world, you see things go south a lot too, which is yeah, yeah, be traumatic. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Shelter work is really hard. And to the folks who have, you know, gone through the program, that's, 30 hours in the span of four months, right? That they're carving out of their super busy days in order to do continuing education for the benefit of the animals in their care. And all of the shelter leaders who have said, yep, we're making this commitment. We're making the commitment to fear-free and we're making the commitment to shelter play group alliance education. Um, so it's really, really cool to see um, the, the commitment to animal welfare. The ripple effects that are happening in the shelter, even outside of that, right? Because I think that from my perspective, when I, I help my clients understand how we can look and meet our animals needs and do all those things, I think that it starts to translate to us and thinking like, wait a minute, how can I meet my needs today? And if we can be happier people, we can only serve the animals better, right? Like it's so much more than just animals, right? It's it's the humans attached to them or volunteering to help them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, positive reinforcement when you're in the practice of it translates um, over to all aspects of our lives. And I'm sure that, you know, those of us who are positive reinforcement trainers and Lima-based trainers, we try to apply all of that stuff regardless of the species, even our own species that we're working with. And to your, to your point, to ourselves too. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So tell us the future. What's the future of SPA? That's a great question. So what I'd love I'm, I'm hoping that in our future is much more funding. So what we would love to be able to do if we had some funding is to, when um, you have the funding, when we have the funding, yes, yes, (laughs) is to, um, you know, open up actually a, a location so that we can take in some shelter dogs, um, and do, and do some more intensive behavior modification, um, with those dogs who are not doing well in the shelter or who need much more, um, support. And then also expand out some of our offerings to, um, to owners 
who would like to, you know, we get lots of owners who are like, I, I think my dog needs a friend. Um, so how can we do that safely? So um, I'd love to do, you know, just kind of one-on-one or I have, my friend has a dog and we'd like for them to meet and we'd like to do it really safely. So we'd love to provide, you know, all sorts of related services and teaching folks about enrichment and all of that. So we'd love to have There's a location such a for that. There's such a need for that, right? Because I think when you don't understand body language, you don't understand nuance, introducing dogs can be a very scary thing, right? Like, oh, wait yeah. a minute, what do we do here? So I love that you're looking at ways to further empower guardians, because I think that, you know, having a dog social dog or a dog particular dog can be really great, but we have to overcome our own stuff to make sure that the dog can get their doggy social needs met. Right. Like, and I think that in and of itself is, is challenging for a lot of us. Right. Like, especially, you know, I'll speak for myself here. A lot of the listeners know I managed two dog aggressive dogs for 10 years and they have been gone for a couple of years. I have a very dog social dog and I am still kind of getting over the like, Rachel, he needs to be around dogs. You got to get over it. Yeah. And you're like, no, 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 no. Three layers of protected contact. Thank you very much. (laughs) Yes. So much. Yes. So I love that. There's such a need for it. Right. And maybe I need it too. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think we all do. We all do, especially for those of us in a lot of our, a lot of our clients, right. Have um, some, you know, fears or you just, just want things to do well, to go well, you just don't know how to do it because it is a specialized skill. Um, And that's why we have our three-day handling workshops. After you finish all of the online learning, then we do an in-person. So our, our actual, our first in-person is going to be in Pasadena in February. So we're excited. How exciting. You can finally gather in person again. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. All vaccinated and masked, but yes, (laughs) finally. Oh my God, this was such a fun conversation. I know my listeners are going to be so excited. Okay. So um, before we wrap it up, can you tell the listeners how is best to connect with you, the website, your social media? Yeah. So, um, we are on Instagram and Facebook and, um, just look up shelter playgroup Alliance. And then our website is shelterdogplay.org. Um, so you can find, we have a yearly conference. So our conference is going to be in June in person and also streamed, um, because we have quite a few international folks who, um, who also will benefit. So this year will be really exciting. Actually, we have Dr. Chris Pockle. Um, we have Michelle Mullins, who's going to do an overview of body language. Tabitha Cusera is going to do some handling um, training for uh, dogs and cats. We're going to talk about a risk assessment um, that we've done. Um, and so we have some really great topics that are coming up for our conference. So check that out on our website as well. And then then people can donate directly on the website. Yes. You can donate, donate all your money. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) We'll take just a little bit. Um, so you can donate on our website. You can actually donate a car. Um, if you have a non-working car, we'll, We'll put that money to use. We have a, a service that will pick it up from you. Um, and then if you'd like to join our cohort um, there, we have two cohorts coming up in 2022. So we have a spring and a fall. So you can just shoot me an email with that 
is mara at shelterdogplay.org and um, just look at just look at what it takes to um, to complete the cohort first and then if that sounds like something that you can do then definitely shoot us and shoot me an email and we'll we'll get you enrolled okay and you said that this is completely free the cohort it's completely free yeah so we don't want to put any cost barriers but we do ask for you know donations for everybody who who can donate to offset the cost of our learning management system amazing oh my god Mara, thank you for being a beautiful human being and making the world a better place through spa. I, it was such a delight to connect and everyone, you really should follow um, Shelter Playgroup Alliance over on Instagram. They post gems a lot. Like I said, the, the arousal, the directions of the arousal, I was just like, preach, preach from the <laughs> rooftops. Oh my God. Mara, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Rachel. It was such a pleasure to chat with you today. So I know that CBD is very popular right now, but did you know that there are other cannabinoid profiles that we can use for not only ourselves, but our our dogs as well? Vetsios has a new product out that is not only CBD, but it also uses CBG and CBN to act together to bring pretty strong results to the dogs. The new combination of the CBG, CBD, and CBN is really good for dogs with significant anxiety, excessive inflammation, or dysfunction of the neurologic system. I have been using the new profiles for Tiva. Many of you know my 14-year-old dog Tiva, and I've seen some really awesome changes in her mobility since starting the CBD, CBG, CBN combination. So if you're interested in trying any CBD products or checking out the new profile, check out vetcs.com and you can use code DisorderlyDogs for 10% off your purchase. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you need help with your dog's behavior, you can learn more about our training services at agoodfeelingdogtraining.com. We post training inspiration and training tips almost daily over on the Instagram at agoodfeeling underscore NCO. If you like this podcast, we would be so grateful if you could share it with a friend or family member who could benefit from all of the information. Um, It's been a total delight. We love this podcast so much. And thank you so much for listening to Disorderly Dogs.